Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Who doesn't like a David and Goliath story? Striking Gold, written by Susan McFadden, is a social history of New Zealand and the Olympic Games by way of the triumphal story of the extremely fit hockey-playing team who improbably won gold at the Montreal Olympics in 1976. Medal winners Selwyn Maester, Arthur Parkin and Ramesh Patel joined Sarah Sandley to relive the tale of the little team that could in a session that was supported by Barfoot and Thompson. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Now it's a fact that the gold medal won by New Zealand hockey at the 1976 Olympics is the only team gold New Zealand's ever won. And we're privileged to have three of the history-making team with us here today, who I'll introduce in their team playing order. First of all, in the middle, number 11, Dr Selwyn Maester, a Rhodes Scholar with three Oxford Blues. Selwyn's devoted much of his life to sport and to hockey. He's been a coach, national selector, and served on the inaugural board of New Zealand Hockey. After the Christchurch earthquakes, he chaired the Canterbury Artificial Services Trust that repaired the city's hockey grounds. A respected leader and administrator, he's been CEO of the Canterbury West Coast Regional Sports Trust. He chairs Paralympics New Zealand and was recognised in the New Year's Honours List in 2012 for services to sport. Selwyn Maester. Thank you. Number 13, Arthur Parkin played 103 hockey tests for New Zealand and went on to be fitness trainer for the men's and women's hockey teams for the 1992 Olympics, to be a national selector for five years and to coach the New Zealand junior team. He taught for 14 years at Mount Roskill Grammar before leaving to set up his own business, Tiger Turf, which fittingly, given that New Zealand's gold medal was won on AstroTurf, specialises in laying the stuff. Arthur Parker. (laughs) And number 15, Ramesh Patel is well known to New Zealanders not only for being one of the stars of the 1976 team, but also for holding the position of CEO of New Zealand Hockey for 21 years, during which time he was instrumental in raising the profile and rankings of both the men's and women's teams. Ramesh received the Queen's Service Medal for Services to Hockey in 1988. Ramesh Patel. Well, it was a team that shouldn't have even gone to the Olympics, according to some popular opinion of the time. They were ranked seventh in the world and hadn't beaten Australia for seven years, 13 straight losses. So there were plenty of knockers who thought that sending a large contingent of amateur hockey players to Montreal included a watersider, an upholsterer, a Rhodes Scholar, an architect, teachers and students was a frivolity and indulgence. Oh, and there was a coach and a manager to boot. What a disgrace. 18 people. (laughs) Public opinion was also quite sharply divided about the All Blacks tour of South Africa that year, a tour that provoked an African boycott of of that Olympics, which provided a kind of backdrop to the Games. But for all that, what transpired was just magic, one of the greatest David and Goliath stories of modern sport when New Zealand beat Australia 1-0 in the final to bring home gold. But I'd like to start by asking you, Selwyn, perhaps to talk about that backdrop to the, to the Games with the African boycott, um, and particularly as you had Kenya in your pool and you know, the feelings of the mm. team as they were packing their bags and forced to go home. Yes, well, th- <coughs> thanks, Sarah. Um, yes, it was. It's something you don't forget in a hurry. As we were going into the village in 1976, into the Montreal village, the African countries were 
deciding whether to stay or not. In fact, some had already gone when we arrived, but during our early days there, teams were leaving. And I must say it was very embarrassing for us, uh, New Zealand hockey team in particular, that this was happening. Um, there was a feeling amongst our team that really we should be the ones going home, or at least among some of us, um, and not the Africans. Uh, but uh, that's what was happening. Um, and uh, I think it'd be fair to say that most of us went around the village without wearing our tracksuits to indicate mm -hmm. we were New Zealand hockey team or New Zealand Olympians. Um, went around incognito uh, because of the embarrassment around that. Um, but in the event, once the African teams had gone um, and the games got underway, I think we parked it and got on with the job. But I do recall those early days being very embarrassing. Mm. So what were your sentiments towards, I um, mean, rugby kind of, uh, sort of hovers around this story like the ghost of Julius Caesar. What were your mm. feelings towards the All Blacks at no, that time? They weren't, they weren't very generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have to say at that stage. Uh, I, well, actually, in my, personally, I was a member of uh, Holt All Racist Tours uh, in <laughs> New Zealand, so uh, it wasn't popular for me that they were actually in South Africa at that stage. And uh, So I was definitely of the view that, that they shouldn't have been there and it made it really difficult for other New Zealand sport. And it carried over, as Suzanne writes in the book, through to 1980, in fact, which you might get onto. Uh, I think, uh, um, if you don't mind, I, before I went away, I was in Dunedin and I um, um, published an article in the paper that the rugby union were uh, quite insensitive uh, by going to South Africa, and I was very much in um, sort of Selwyn's belt. I wasn't a member of Hart and Hulk or but I'd expect those sentiments. I think the most embarrassing speech I ever had to make was when we came back and I was invited to the Green Island Rugby Club to give a speech in front of 6,000 people sit-down dinner. Mm. They really wanted to see Duncan Robinson, but they invited me because I'd opened my mouth about how, and basically I was pretty much booed off the stage mm -hmm. for um, uh, expressing my sentiments that were later proven to be correct. For me, um, the All Blacks have always been my favourite team, to be honest, and, um, <laughs> and, they, and they still remain my favourite team. Um, and, but at that time, um, I was a bit like Solomon as well. We were sort of the anti-tour and mm. uh, went in some of those sort of demonstrations, um, probably a little bit further away from the front line. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a trying experience and, um, you know, something that uh, sort of lasted and uh, stayed with us for a long time. Mm. I mean, rugby was such a... It, 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 it's such a dominant sport. It is, another, it is a goliath of sport in New Zealand. So it's quite interesting to me how, why, how it was that each of you took up hockey, and I wouldn't mind hearing from you your account of that. Uh, well, hockey launched... I mean, rugby launched me into hockey. I, I played for Horror Horror in Wangarei for a season when I was six and got buried on the bottom of a ruck at one stage and had a severe case of panic and uh, wasn't that keen on rugby anymore. But also I had these um, married boys that used to meet me on the corner of Lupton Ave and um, give me a hard time on the way. So it was my sister actually who played hockey and my older sister, Elizabeth, and we played um, hockey games up and down the side of the house with all our neighbours' kids, and that's really where I started playing hockey. But um, I gave up rugby uh, after one season and went on, played 52 seasons of hockey in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Are you that old? Some achievement. <laughs> <laughs> 
For me, um, it was uh, primary school, and again, like I think most New Zealand kids, we all played rugby. I think I was the skinniest rugby player on the week. <laughs> um, but um, really, for me, the hockey was in our family. Um, my older, uh, older brothers uh, used to play. Um, but what got me into the St. Luke's Hockey Club was uh, someone coming up to, I went to Anyhanger Primary, came out there and asked if anyone wanted to join, and I put up my hand and mm. stayed with them ever since mm. from that time. Mm. Mm. Slightly different account for you, of course, Selwyn, with the involvement of your family. Well, in yes, it, it was, Sarah, but I was raised in the country, and in the little country schools you played every sport. So I mm. played rugby, hockey, tennis and everything. But when we came into Christchurch, into, into the big city, I ended up playing hockey because obviously I had a strong family connection. My grandfather, who incidentally got involved in hockey through a rugby injury back in the early 1900s, but he had a long involvement with the game. My father also, and so it was sort of natural in our family that one picked up a hockey stick. We weren't forced to do so, but mm. that's the background. So having played rugby, I wasn't quite the build for basketball or rugby. <laughs> <laughs> so hockey seemed a good choice. <laughs> um, you know, it was such a pleasure talking with you all backstage before we came on here. The, the friendship that you have is, 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 is almost tangible. Um, you know, teamwork uh, is such a holy grail of sport and business, and it's evident that you achieved the pinnacle of this um, at those games. So can you talk for a little bit about what, what made for such a strong team? Um, it's, well, it's just the personalities, I guess. I guess um, there was firstly a fairly strong um, rivalry between Canterbury and Auckland and Northland, and so it was quite a strong provincial um, environment. But uh, so firstly, I'd say there's probably respect um, that came from playing uh, at a high level against each other out of a competitive environment and then so when we came together people always said you know how do you get on with those cannery bastards you know that sort of stuff <laughs> well actually there was always there was never a problem there was always very much just respect and uh, as it happened you know people like Barry and Selwyn and they and and Cheers as Alan Chesney were sort of there was a humour that and just uh, emanated out of that team and, and it bounced off all these people. And so we, we actually really enjoyed each other's company. We, we all worked hard and we enjoyed the competition. We had total respect, but then we had fun together. So that's sort of out of that. And, uh, and, and a good manager who fostered all that and, mm. um, and Tony Palmer and actually was the butt of most of that and uh, the sounding board of most of that humour that created a really close-knit and happy team. Mm. Mm. Yes, I'd, I'd sort of add to that. Um, there's a lot of talk these days in sport and in business about culture and having a good culture, and that's all successful teams rely on that. And so the question is, you know, what generates good culture? And as Arthur says, we, we, we got on really well together. I, I think part of it, and someone said to me after the Christchurch launch of the book, when we were all up, brought up on stage in groups and questioned, that... One of the things that struck this person who was talking to me was around the fact we didn't take ourselves too seriously. We mm. are quite self-deprecating in the way that we, we um, carry on our conversations and our discussions. And, and I think we didn't take ourselves too seriously and there was certainly no semblance of any ego amongst the players. Um, we were a team really, as has been described, of no stars, a star team without stars. And I think some of all that adds up to... Um, the fact that we got on so well, we had a great sense of humour, as Parky says, uh, and it all just magically uh, converted into a, 
a, a good culture, which exists to this day when we still meet, we get on incredibly well. Yeah, for me, just to add on to that, um, agree with everything that was said. Um, for me, um, starting off, uh, and probably Arthur as well, you know, um, some of these guys who were in the team in 1968 we were our idols. Um, and so when we got into the team with them in 72, um, you know, playing alongside your idols was uh, pretty special. Mm. Um, and then, of course, outside that and during that time in the lead up to the 76, of course, we were fierce rivals, as has already been mentioned, especially the Auckland Canterbury. Um, and um, surprisingly, you know, uh, after that, for me in particular, some of these some of these guys also became my mentors. Mm. You know, and so for career choices, etc., it was some of these guys that we were sort of talking to, you know, for our career choices. So it was pretty special, special mm. group. I mean, I really this touches on the whole sort of issue of mateship in a way, that sort of close male friendship. And you've spoken about mentoring and not taking yourselves too seriously. What were the other aspects of of what, have, what has that meant to you, this ongoing friendship in your, in your lives? You've been there for each other, presumably. Yeah, I think we all, we've all had, as they say, a bit of skin in the game. We, we, <laughs> we, were, all, uh, we, we were all working. Um, we all had to give up quite a lot to play hockey for New Zealand in those days. And I'm not saying people don't these days. I'm sure there are similar um, concessions made. But in those days, we all had jobs. We sometimes weren't paid when we were away or reduced to half pay. Um, we had or took all our annual leave and all those things. So we all had a major contribution that we'd made personally. And when you've all done that, somehow you all feel a little bit united by having the same, um, the same deprivation, if you like, mm. in a financial sense, let alone the time and everything. Mm. Um, well, we all know that um, perspiration is a significant aspect of any success at an elite level in sport. So, I'm, I'm, you know, when I think when I th think about that account, you had families, jobs, um, fitness training, and technical mm. training. Can you talk us through what an av can you talk us through the, an average day? What was it like? What were you What were you doing each day in the lead up to the Olympics? Your training. Get up, get up early, go for a run, come home, have breakfast, go to school, teach, or go to university. Then uh, go for a run, another run in the evening, and then uh, generally school school training practice with the either the club team or the provincial team. Mm. And so it's pretty much a full you know a full day every day. You know, I had no trouble sleeping <laughs> like mm. I do now, mm. but. <laughs> Because you're exhausted, pretty much, yeah. Mm. And um, so the level of training um, that we did, we did a lot of running in those yeah. days. Yeah. We didn't do so much um, circuit uh, fitness, or we didn't do so much weight training, but we did a lot of circuit training, press-ups, burpees, star jumps, tuck jumps, mm. those types of things, um, using our own body weight, which you could do anywhere. So mm -hmm. um, that was sort of, yeah, but we did a lot of running, mm. yeah. We, it was a running sport, and we played 70 minutes in those days. It didn't go on and off like they do these days and get a rest. You played 70 minutes since you tried to prepare yourself for that. Mm. And Lydia mm. must have been an influence in that, mm. in that, um, in running being a base of your yep. training. Was, mm. Did you, yep. you guys had a similarly gruelling days, I presume, every day? Yeah, it's pretty typical of that. Um, so mm. we, Arthur and I trained quite a lot as well um, together, but um, it was pretty much, um, you know, your whole day was um, structured around your training. In fact, uh, your work life was 
you know, you had to fit your work life in because the training really came first. Mm. Um, but um, in that time, of course, uh, as we mentioned before, you know, you're training with your provincial team um, because provincial hockey in that, at that time, I think, was a lot stronger than it is now. Mm. Um, and it meant a lot more. And it, um, it meant just as much representing um, my province of Auckland as it was representing New Zealand. So you know, we're, we're doing training for your, uh, your province, your club, um, and of course, we still had that ethic about um, making sure you never missed a club practice, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably uh, these days, it's a little bit different, and probably a lot of codes, you know, that they're really only playing up the top level, and there's not a lot of club sport being played quite as much for those elite sportsmen. Mm. You realise, Sarah, that the Canterbury guys trained much harder than the Auckland guys. <laughs> of course they did. So, you know, there was quite a bit of rivalry going on there. We'd hear the, we'd hear the scores come from Auckland and make bloody sure we did more. But we had this 12-minute run that we are all doing. And um, so we had our... We used to do it on a 400-metre track. And uh, that was carefully calculated to how far you could run in 12 minutes. And uh, so the Canterbury scores and the Auckland scores are always very carefully scrutinised to make sure that the Auckland guys weren't shirking and doing their fair share. Yeah. <laughs> well, after the after the seventies, when Auckland caught up with Canterbury, of course, <laughs> of course, Canterbury had to do the extra to stay with us. <laughs> That's right. Um, you've, so you know, it's very clear reading the book that uh, fitness was um, a, a key, one of the key components to your success at that um, at at the Montreal Olympics. There's a line that I love in the book that illustrates the naivety of the time um, uh, regarding fitness. Coach Ross. Gillespie is quoted as saying, when somebody said he'd done a hamstring, we thought, what the hell's a hamstring? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> clearly, clearly there was... carrying the bacon <laughs> home. <and laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, actually, there was a rethink and a recalibration yes. of the approach. Uh, Very much yeah. so. Uh, in 72, I spoke to the New Zealand men on Tuesday. Um, their, their team's getting named shortly and... Um, I've presented them a stick so we, uh, they, for various things which they hand around the team. But it, so I went and spoke to them at their training, and the, um, the goalkeeper asked me, "How did how did the how did your training change from 72 to 76 to 80, and then to 84? That, that sort of over that time. Well, and and at 72 we were still quite amateurish, really in terms. We, we did running and we were fit, but we, our whole approach was not quite as professional. In 76 we went, in 75 we went to the World Cup in Malaysia. And which was a very difficult place to play hockey. It was, you know, 35 degrees and 90-something percent humidity. So it's it really, you do a sprint and if you weren't fit, you wouldn't recover. And it would found you out really quickly. We got walloped 5-1 or 5-0 by Australia in the last game. And so we realised then that we weren't fit enough at the, at the middle end of a tournament. And mm. so we came back and had a training camp and Ross got um, Brian Monsell involved who had done his PhD in uh, physical education and was a lecturer at Otago University and went on. And so he took over our um, devising, our, and that was probably our first proper scientific periodised training program that gradually put an, an Arthur Lydia type endurance um, base which we all did religiously through the summer I think I ran 100 miles one week and that was wow. uh, that was an eye opener to me and I we've always idolized Peter Snell and Arthur Lydia mm. and those type, that era that of um, good runners that we grew yeah. up with and we idolized and B.B. Keeley was a favorite person of mine and so we we, we had a whole summer of um, heavy 
mileage training and then gradually um, decrease the distances down to 300s and 200s and 100s and increase the intensity and decrease the, the um, rest intervals. And so we trained our bodies to recover. And so that was uh, very much a getting Brian Monsell on board and having a really quite a scientifically based training program. That was quite a change from the Olympics before. And there's no doubt in any of our minds that that was a massive part in mm. us winning in extra time in several games. And the interesting mm. thing is, I mean, athletes today are closely supervised and there are electronic methods for monitoring and measuring mm. whether people have kept mm. to their routine. But in your day, that would have simply been a self-commitment and a commitment yeah. you made to self and others to maintain that. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Mm. Don't let your mate down. <coughs> there. You always assume they're training harder somewhere else, although we knew they weren't. But, uh, <laughs> 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 but, uh, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Don't let your mate down. So I, I can remember I spent a, a three years in the UK and I was chosen for, for um, Munich from the UK. My I was petrified that I was following the program that I'd come back and wouldn't be as fit as the guys yeah. that I met up with in Munich. So I trained, I think, probably harder yeah. so to ensure that didn't happen. So that was the, what drove a lot of us. There was no, often no supervision or close supervision. It was reliant on you doing your work yourself. Mm. Well, we are in the midst of an obesity crisis in New Zealand. There's no evidence of that on stage. So, I mean, clearly <laughs> you've all kept up some form of regime, although um, Arthur, you do have your, uh, you've got your... Jacket yeah. here. I wouldn't. Uh, can yeah, you still well, fit it? We were pretty lean machines in those days. Uh, we Come did on, a, we, give it a go. We yes. did a lot of mileage, so you know. Does, I just brought this along because I, I wanted to prove that people do change. <laughs> and, um, this is the official Montreal jet, um, thing, and so this is. <laughs> So, I'm not too sure about this, yeah. Pack, pack, you've grown. I don't know whether, grown. I'm not sure whether the jacket's been through the hot wash or after it's had some form of cosmetic, bizarre cosmetic surgery to lengthen his arms. Um, we've spoken about sort of the, you know, you had quite a diverse team, people were from different backgrounds, you held each other to account, that was a key factor. I, d I think as well, there was a diversity of coaches that seemed to be, in reading the book, a factor in the success um, in terms of different styles and learning from that. Can we just touch on the coaches that, that you were privileged to work with? Oh, well, perhaps the, it starts, perhaps the genesis might be with Cyril Walter, um, CV, as he's known and described in, in the book. Um, CV learned his hockey basically from the Indian teams that came to New Zealand in the 1920s and 30s, became a devout disciple of that way of playing the game and coached that in Canterbury, particularly in our club, University Club in Canterbury. And uh, from that team emanated a large number of, of New Zealand hockey players. And the Canterbury, he then became coach of Canterbury and brought those ideas through, basically around high level of individual skill, short passing, high level of fitness type of way of playing the game. Um, so that's where it started, I guess, for, for me. And then in Auckland, uh, Ivan Armstrong, who actually incidentally played for Canterbury University with Cyril Walter in his early days, um, wasn't exactly a disciple of CV's ways of doing things, but he came to Auckland as a headmaster at Mangere College and started coaching up here again, Auckland University. And uh, Arthur played in that team, and he can probably talk a little bit about um, what Ike was doing. But basically, CV and Ike didn't really see eye to eye on the hockey, about hockey. And so th that thus is a nice background to the Auckland-Canterbury rivalry in many ways. Um, 
the two coaches didn't like each other an awful lot. They wouldn't enjoy a beer together, I don't think, mm. would they? No, no. no. But, um, that, that's true. Uh, but actually, uh, what happened is Cyril, Cyril actually would be the whole... He set the standard in terms of um, striving for excellence, to play a game without missing a trap and without throwing a bad pass and have excellence in stick work. And that excellence that he got the Canterbury team to strive, that sort of spread through New Zealand hockey. And so while they were training indoors at the Canterbury court, and then we did the same, we, we practised at Ivan's school in his gymnasium, so we had small games, and we were both practising on um, um, indoors, on floor. So when we actually went to uh, Montreal, it was the first mm. ever, ever tournament on artificial turf, mm. we were quite well prepared for mm, that mm, because mm. We, we all trained indoors. And was mm. that unique to New Zealand, do you think, that aspect? Probably uh, Germany. Mm. Germany probably practices indoor. Indoor hockey is very strong in Germany, and they they a lot of they brought a lot of indoor schools into into hockey, into modern hockey, and so that that would be Holland and Germany would be two places that probably did the same. Mm. And um, mm. back in those days, of course, and some people here might remember, but uh, we used to play a lot of indoor hockey um, here at the Auckland University on a Sunday night. Um, but that's sort of how it started. But there was no doubt that our winters and um, dark nights, you know, there's no lights and bumpy grounds, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was an obvious place to go, it was to go indoors. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we just, uh, we were the same, you know, as Arthur and Selwyn have said, it's those tight skills and individual skills on the indoor, which, um, you know, it's something that uh, I still do with my school teams at the moment that I coach. Mm. Um, yeah, the only difference with what Canterbury were doing is that Ivan brought in some running you know, they were just sort of <laughs> just doing the dribbling. Yeah, they, yeah, they forgot yeah. about the running. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, um, yeah. Ivan brought in the running yeah, and consequently yeah, yeah. a bit quicker than Well, he was yeah. quite a taskmaster yeah. by all accounts. Um, and it would force but you to sort of... They probably both were. Yeah, both yeah. Were yeah. I'd yeah. say in their own way they both yeah. were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ike was the um, coach of the... Montreal, uh, sorry, the team in Mexico in '68. He was New Zealand coach in '68, so he rose to coach New Zealand as well. Cyril Walter never coached New Zealand; he um, wasn't invited to do so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Those two coaches were quite yin and yang type coaches, really, because <laughs> Cyril Walter was very much a hard task mm. match. A mm. lot of dribbling around cones mm. and round and round the yep. gym would have driven us nuts in Auckland. <laughs> but uh, I, I, Ivan was very much uh, a character and funny chap, and he he brought us all as teaching schools where he used to make us do all these silly fun relays that were you mm. know built a lot of team spirit and really competitive and we played these small games and so at some stage he'd get you there and he'd, he'd get you doing things and then he'd make you put your leg up on the wall like this and then he'd say now bark I said, you know and he'd catch you out <laughs> just, there's always a lot of fun in his training sessions but, yeah. but they were hard out competitive yeah. and very yeah. very competitive training yeah. sessions that we you know you went out of those pretty exhausted but um, had a lot of fun yeah. Yeah, strong mm. psychological elements mm. to Ike's coaching I remember <laughs> in Mexico basically uh, he was um, talking about the Australian team we were about to play uh, in a practice match it was and he said um, we were all a bit apprehensive about it look at those Australians over there they're shitting themselves he said you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know they're worried about playing you you know <laughs> I'm going to fast forward now to the event itself um, we've already mentioned that you had one team forced out of your pool. West Germany, Spain, Belgium, Pakistan in your pool. Formidable. Um, you made your way through. Made your way through the pool. Through the pool. Only one. Only one loss. 
Mm. <laughs> Pretty significant one. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, it was. Um, mm. They played wonderful. They, Pakistan. Pakistan was uh, really the yardstick team in those days. They they had some wonderful hockey players. Very gifted player in Samiola. Uh, Akhtar Azul in centre half and Manzur Jr. in inside right. They had a forward line to die for. They were they set the standard really in world hockey at that stage, a bit like the Australian men do now. So they were they were I think to be honest, I've always felt that if we played that tournament ten times in a row, they probably would have won it eight. Um, mm. uh, I think they were they were the mm. standard. But at, having said that, West Germany were the current Olympic yeah. champions. Yeah. They were the current European champions, and we played them in the first uh, mm. game, and we tight game, very close. We drew one all, and the press back home said, "Disappointing start by New Zealand team." <laughs> <laughs> so, th so that was always the sort of press we used to get because they were so focused on rugby and John mm. Walker, the hockey team yep. only drew against West Germany, you know? Yeah. So it's possibly to, um, to people's uh, surprise and certainly to rising panic in ranks of TVNZ who hadn't booked any... Um, oh, yeah. Who yeah. hadn't booked a satellite. Uh, in th these were the days in which you had to schedule what you wished to have covered by satellite. And... Um, I must read you this, it's very funny. This was um, Brendan Telfer. I don't know if Brendan's here today, but I mean, obviously a very accomplished broadcaster, but was in a complete panic because um, uh, in this quote, in the second week of the Olympics, our executive producer in Montreal, Harold Anderson, took me aside and said, Brendan, I'm having a nightmare with this hockey team. They keep winning and now they're in the bloody semi-finals. <laughs> I've been told that if they beat Holland, we have to cover the final live, and you're going to have to commentate it. I was hoping, like hell, he wouldn't get the satellite. <laughs> so that was <laughs> that was, that was yeah. Brendan Telfer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and you you had a replay against Spain, which uh, you won in extra in extra time. Well, Heck we yeah. won most things in extra, extra time. time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's this fitness park he was talking about. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it was we, extra, we, extra time. Yeah, yeah we, contrived, mm. we contrived to get ourselves in a situation where we were level on points for Spain after the pool play because yep. we had it. We didn't have the Kenya game to play. We had this, yep. this draw with this draw with Germany, draw with Spain, beaten Belgium, lost to Pakistan. So we ended up having to play Spain in an extra time uh, and won an extra time. I think that. <laughs> in a mm. way, I was more nervous about that yeah. game yeah. than even the subsequent games because yeah. New Zealand hockey had never reached the semis yeah. before. And it this was a medal was a, match. This was the game. Mm. And mm. if we failed again, you know, we'd be also Rans and as has been commented, we'd get ribbed back home. But so the winning that game was a pressure valve release for yeah. me. And yeah. um, hey, we're into, the, we're into the semis. Well, then you can regroup. Mm. And um, of course, at that point, we had to play Holland. And I think Holland were probably the second best team at the tournament mm. on, before on paper and so on, and behind Pakistan and the Australians who mm. came through in an extra time replay mm. as well mm. were due to play Pakistan. So everyone assumed Holland would play in Pakistan yeah. the final. That was the presumption. But it seemed for me from Suzanne's account that it was around that time, sort of after you'd beaten Spain, that there was a kind of a, a calm that descended on the team, you know, when, when, when you're in flow, you know, <coughs> and you're playing. And it seemed like the confidence levels rose rose a lot um, uh, the, the singing got up, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly, um, certainly that game against um, Holland for me um, was, uh, or even before we went into that game, was um, one that we thought, yes, we can do this. You know, so getting into the yeah. top four was, was something special. But then 
we thought, right, playing Holland, and you would think, well, you know, they're the World Cup champions, you know, how could we think like that? Well, it all goes back to about three years before that. In 74, we played a tournament in Christchurch mm. and we're 3-0 down at half-time and won that game 4-3. Mm. And then in 19, uh, 1975 at the World Cup in Malaysia, uh, we beat them 2-1 in a game and we were labelled the giant killers. We didn't do much else in that mm. tournament. But um, there were two wins. And so coming into this third game, we were very confident that we could actually do quite well against Collins. So. Oh, that's an interesting example to me of, of, of sort of winning psychology. So when you played Netherlands in the semi-final, all you could remember were the, the positive things. But heading in against Australia, you weren't haunted by the seven years, 13 losses. It seemed that the mindset was quite different for the team heading into that well, final. By that time, we'd had the silver, of course, and so yeah, that's a yeah. different what, mindset. Yeah, yeah mm. different mm. mindset again. So how did you prepare on the, on the morning uh, heading... Of the final? Yeah. Well, well, I didn't have the hang-up some of these guys had because I hadn't lost too often against Australia. I'd been away. That's <laughs> <laughs> one way of doing so it. So I had a, a wonderful start to my career against Australia. That's, what, that's why we lost. <laughs> oh, oh ravish, you're too kind. <laughs> no, but I, I, my record against Australia wasn't too bad, but, but obviously they, they were favourites, strong favourites. But I think sort of following on what Ramish said, yeah, I think a bit of a momentum built up in the team. Mm. And we had beaten Holland against most predictions. And I think we'd beaten them deservedly so, in my view. I think it was technically probably our best game at the tournament. Mm. So going into the Australian match, I mean, you could say it doesn't matter, we've got a silver at least, but it wasn't the mindset I sensed in the team at all. It was a real feeling that, yes, I think we're on a roll here. I mm. think we can do it. Mm. Um, and these guys had lost, sure, the year before these guys, because I didn't go to the World Cup. But <laughs> you lost to Australia 5-0. But yeah. you had beaten them in, or drawn with them in the first early uh, rounds, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about a calm, Sarah. I think it was, it was more of a um, quiet resolve, um, mm. a determination. Mm. might have been calmness, but we'd, all, we'd suffered little setbacks and little things had gone wrong in the years before. We were so close and, you know, yeah. an umpiring decision cost us a semi-final yeah. place in the, in the World Cup in 75 and, and, and go back to the 68 Olympics and Selwyn, don't like to bring down Selwyn, but yeah, yeah. no mistake. It's all right. Yeah. Go ahead. With two minutes to go, put a stroke over the top against East Germany. <laughs> West, West Germany. West, West Germany. Germany. Yeah, West Germany. Otherwise, you've been in yeah, no, I don't know how anyone <laughs> can do that. <laughs> so... You've got the three misses up here. Uh, <laughs> missed a stroke, missed a stroke, missed two goals in the final. So, so that's why we were up here. We're, it's a punishment. We were put up here. But it was, uh, we've had those disappointments before, mm. and so when we finally got in the semi-final position, we'd always knew we could compete against any of those teams, and it, yeah. on our day, beat any of yeah. them. You know, that there, was, there was that belief, and we'd beaten Pakistan, the team, in the, in the yeah. warm-up game, so... Yeah. Our confidence really grew from that, but really it was a, it was quite a um, a steely resolve, really, yeah. than a determination that we weren't going to let this opportunity slip again. Yeah. Mm. So mm. TVNZ did get the satellite coverage. Can I just see a show of hands as to and, and hockey games were cancelled all over mm. the country that morning. <laughs> Who here actually watched the watched the final? Wow, okay. it's a good cool. number. It's great. It says something yeah. about the age of the audience, <laughs> I think. <laughs> 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 
Well, I think the word that Suzanne uses to describe the first half is scrappy, and a oh, lot of oh, yeah. a lot of opportunities were <laughs> squandered. So here's your chance. <laughs> <laughs> go for it, mate. <laughs> no, it was uh, it was pretty scrappy. Um, so we missed a stroke early on. Um, we. <laughs> <laughs> we we as a team missed one. <laughs> no, I missed the stroke, and, yeah, and that was after a few minutes. Um, and we hadn't really played that well. In fact, Australia were pouring everything at us. How we survived mm. to be nil all at half time is, yeah. uh, you know, it was beyond us really. And um, but we were told, in no uncertain terms, at half time that uh, you know we better get out there and start playing some hockey. Yes, um, I think that it's a mild-mannered Ross Gillespie gave you what can be described as an old-fashioned bollocking, really, didn't yeah. he, at mm. half time? Yeah. <laughs> Alex Wiley would have been proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, it surprised me. It wasn't Ross's style at all. Mm. But, um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. We should bolt upright. What's going on here? Mm. Yeah, mm. so you went out in the second half and... Well, yeah. I think technically we played pretty well in that early part of the second half. We, dom we did dominate and we played well mm. and we started... Um, you know, we were sort of a little bit of a defensive mindset in the first half and, you know... Me personally, I remember they had a right half, David Bell, who was very much an attacking weapon and, you know, he was supposed to be marking me, but it was sort of the other way around. I was marking him, you know, as a forward marking a half. So we, we sort of, um, we were a little bit defensive, I think, and so mm. in the, but in the second half after our bollocking, we, we, um, <laughs> we pretty much rose to it and played some good hockey and dominated and scored in that time and got ahead. and Had some chances. And, uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alan, fair enough. <laughs> And I, I missed two goals, and you know, we <laughs> afterwards, I think even the Australians would admitted that you know, if everything had gone well, we probably would have won four, four one, one or something yeah. like that. But um, yeah. but then we, then it changed, and then they fought back as Australians do, and yeah. we were hanging on, and uh, it yeah. was a very tense and exciting, and you know, when you people watched it, it was a pretty tense finish. And with <laughs> ten minutes to go, uh, mm. ext something extraordinary happened when goalie Trevor Manning. Um, <laughs> suffered a, a, an injury that um, is, I mean, would, would, would have most people in hospital immediately. Well, I've seen the x-rays of the, his kneecap and I can tell you it was that his kneecap was smashed into four completely separate mm. pieces. Yeah. Um, and he was... <laughs> He was a hypochondriac for years before that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and Mo like most goalies. Yes, I told he you so. <laughs> he was very happy to be on the bench. Trevor! Stand up, Trevor! Oh, really? <laughs> there we are. <laughs> 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 so, Trevor very deservedly <laughs> became the hero of the team. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know how he how he did what he did is absolutely still flabbergast at mm. me that he could do that. Um, you know, and he was lying on the ground going, "Oh, oh, my knee, oh, my knee," like this. And we would tell him, "Come up and say you'll be right, Pino. Yeah, give, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. give it a rub." Yeah, it's only ten minutes ago. Yeah. Go, oh no, my knee. Oh, oh, like this. You know, and we're like, "Oh, come on, Trevor." You know. Yeah. So what then, he um, so what he did then, I think, is unbelievable. Yeah. So he gets yeah. up and does a couple of. Knee, knee squats, of course deep, he does. He did a deep one. He did, yeah. he, he did yeah. I think I've seen the video. He did I mean, what two else are you going to do? Two deep, deep, deep knee squats. Bends, yep. like two deep knee squats. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I don't know how and he did it. Yeah. But <laughs> knowing as well that mm. he couldn't go off because 
there was a penalty corner and there's That's not right. obviously yeah. obviously not permitted to change. But I mean I just find that unbelievable. Mm. To a couple yeah. of well, squats with a He hung in there for four more two. corners actually. He, yeah, he made, a save, made a save on one of them. Yeah. Fell down <laughs> on the next two. <laughs> Just to show you that things were different in those days, he was representing his country and winning an Olympic gold medal and being the hero, and, but unfortunately he wasn't covered by ACC because yeah, <laughs> it happened outside New Zealand. That was the rule in those days. Yep. So he was never covered, by no. <laughs> even though he's up to there in plus yep. and mm. in crutches. And yep. um, Yeah, that was a tragedy. Mm. They've changed that rule since. Mm. So, yes, mm. uh, and so Euphoria, uh, victory at 1-0 and... You're quickly ushered up onto towards the medal dais, and then the realization that two of your team mm. can't join you. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that that's just dreadful. To this mm. day, is uh, just a um, travesty of justice and mm. unfair, and that for all. And they gave them a presentation at the book launch recently, but honestly, they've had 40 years of family and friends and children and grandchildren that uh, didn't have a medal to show. Granddad, yeah. you haven't got a medal. It's um, pretty yeah. tough. Mm. The IOC are mm. happy to strip people of medals retrospectively. You do sort of wonder whether there'd be a further reconsideration. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's Mike Stan is here in the, in the audience. I'm sure New Zealand, the NZOC, is, uh, has t spoken about this, but it, it's very sad. I think very they sad. did try quite hard, uh, didn't we, Mike, over the years. Um, so yeah. 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 I think the chance is well gone now. That's yeah. Um, yeah, it's very sad. Um, legacy. So, I mean, these sorts of uh, victories, and Arthur, Arthur actually does have his medal here, by the way. So, if you've never, uh, you've never seen one, if you've never seen one, you're very welcome to come up and have a look. Um, and yeah, it's very special. It's uh, simple, and uh, but it represents a lot. Yeah. It's got a bit of a dent in it, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to explain he's, that? He's referring, <laughs> he's referring to a story. Uh, when we won, we went um, back to the village, of course, and we, we, we'd always met our supporters that were there in the little bar beside the Olympic Village, and we went down, and of course it was party time, and we were just celebrating and having a nice time. But then we went off into town, and we ended up in a German beer hall in town till about... I don't know what time it was, it was two or three in the morning. But while we were celebrating, we all were wearing our medals under our shirts, of course, but uh, well, was up, we were in this German beer hall and we're, I was swinging it around like this. <laughs> and uh, so there was a big umpa band up there, but unbeknownst to me, the, the, um, the screw unscrewed. Uh, and that unscrewed, and anyway, it flew. <laughs> it flew across the room and hit this bass player fair smack in the head like that, and he crashed back through all these speakers, they went everywhere, we thought it was really funny. <laughs> and about half an hour later we were on the dance floor and Chez said, oh Parky, look up there, there's a bass player who's sitting there like this. He had this huge lump on his forehead, because as you come and feel it, it's very quite heavy. Yeah, I, I, know, I know your concern was more for where the middle was. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah. So you're very welcome to, um, if you haven't seen one before, they're, you know, they're not stick on the ground, are they? <laughs> but Selwyn, in terms of legacy, you, you, you're quoted and uh, you, you write in the epilogue, um, we don't want to go through our lives as the only ones to ever win Olympic gold. We want to share our good fortune. Um, let's talk about what has... A Ramesh, perhaps you're, you, you can talk about what do you think would... Um, what's required for 
the uh, men's or women's team in contemporary era to yeah. repeat um, this? Yeah, at, at the moment I, I don't want to talk up the black sticks um, simply because I think they're in a very good position, both <laughs> men and women. So I'm going to talk them down because every time, <laughs> every time we talk them up, I'll just say that they're very capable, mm. very capable and watch this space. Mm. That's what I'm going to say. But I think one of the things that's led to the current situation is the increasing depth we've got. Like, we're a very small nation and a small hockey-playing nation compared to most of the major rivals in the world. The number of senior hockey players in the country is small. So we've got to increase that base and the base of players who are capable of playing at international level. And the current two national coaches have been doing that, trying to build depth um, in the numbers. And that makes it easier to get a strong team. Um, the more players we get at that higher level, the better quality national team we have. And I think they've both been working on that, and particularly the women, I believe they've got considerable more depth than they've had for a while. And mm. um, so that's the key to it, um, in my view. Mm. Mm, I would think um, the women's team have got a, a quite an inequality, which I um, will stand them in good stead. They've got a bit of They've got a bit of old-fashioned fight and guts, and they, sometimes they're not playing that well, but they fight, and I think that's a pretty good quality. And the men's team, I think they've just been quite achiever. They've just promised a lot and did not quite delivered for one reason or another, mm. but I think they've built, built up their... Um, I spoke to them the other night, I said, look, you, you know, our win against Pakistan lifted our confidence. You've just, they just recently played Australia and... Um, Kuala Lumpur and um, what I was talking about before, but they, they drew um, one all against them and they mm. played, not in the second half, they played hockey. Australia, is, as I say, is, the, is the, the team setting the standard at the moment. They not only competed with them, they dominated them in the second half and so they should really grasp onto that and I think they've got good goalkeepers, they've got a good corner and they've got um, some skillful players, world-class players and watch the space for them too. I really hope they have a good tournament. But I think the Great Britain game, the second game in, they play Australia in the first game and then Great Britain in the second game. Mm. They've been a bogey team for them, Great Britain, so I think that's a crucial game for them. Mm. Mm. So much for not talking mm. them up, Parky. <laughs> <laughs> that's jinxed them now, hasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So I think now both teams and both um, New Zealand hockey and their coaches have done a wonderful job mm. and um, they've brought them up and into a position where they're both... Um, both. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like again to thank you all very much for coming along to this afternoon's session. I hope you've enjoyed it, and it just I'd like to thank our panellists. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.